Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everyone, I normally do this at the end of a video, but I just wanted to say that we have some new merch in the Teespring store. We officially have a name for everyone here. I've decided on the Mr. Davis Investigation Agency, the MIDA. If you're interested in becoming part of the MIDA, just head down to the Teespring link in the top of the description and pick up a hoodie, t-shirt, mug, phone case, sticker, whatever, and um, show some support for the channel and the MIDA. Thanks so much, everyone, and um, I hope you enjoy tonight's stories. There's something up in the rafters of my old church. Kids have a funny idea about God. Because really, how do you explain it? God isn't a person. He's not even really a spirit. He's a concept. At best. And a lot of kids aren't great at dealing in concepts. When I was growing up, everyone had their own version of God to sell to me. A big man with a long white beard living in the sky. An incorporeal spirit that moves in all of us and binds everyone on the earth together. The voice inside your head that chastises you when you push your brother too hard. But that wasn't God. Not to me. God was the thing living in the rafters. Our church was big and old and beautiful, which is probably why I didn't like it. The wood was infested with creaks and groans. The stained glass windows had dulled with age, the ruby reds and emerald greens fading until they looked more like drying blood and primordial soup. Whenever you walked through the front door, you were assaulted by a strong, musty stench like opening a tomb long since abandoned. And towering above the pews, high in the ceiling, were decrepit rafters crisscrossing through the darkness. Every Sunday during Mass, I would stare at them. My eyes would try to trace them, failing where the shadows were deepest. I would see a glint of something here, there, maybe metal, maybe not, and I would imagine there were eyes staring at me. The many eyes of God. See, I'd gotten it into my head that he lived up there. Whenever the priest would pray, he'd lift his eyes up to the rafters as though speaking to the thing that I was sure proud above us. He would preach to us about something all-knowing, all-seeing, watching everything we do like it had eyes everywhere in the world. One for every member of its flock. One of those eyes up there was meant for me alone. I just knew it. Over the years, the fantasy grew. It became more detailed, more involved but never more stable. From Sunday to Sunday, it would change. Some days I was sure its body must be long and lean, like a snake slithering from beam to beam. 
Others, I thought it more like a spider, its legs covered in sleepy, blinking eyes. Once, I imagined it had hundreds of tentacles, each with an eye on its end, swarming through the rafters, creating the pulsing darkness I saw. What didn't change were the rules. Of course, it had rules that much we learned in church, and they had been the same for thousands of years. It watched, always. It judged, always. And it punished, always. It would come and get me if I was bad. I'd like to be able to tell you that things changed when I got older, and I'd shed this fear like so many other childish things, that it was put away in the same box my stuffed animals and half-used coloring books. I'd like to lie and somehow make it come true. By the time I was twelve, I was petrified of God. I had nightmares almost nightly of it coming down from the rafters and snatching me up into the darkness. Every time I told a white lie, snapped at my parents, spaced out when the teacher was talking, all sins marked against me like an invisible tally, inching me closer to death. Or whatever out there was worse than death. My parents were bewildered. Why would a child be afraid of church? They thought I was lying about it for a while, a way to get out of going, I suppose, but my tantrums weren't petulant. They were disturbing. I would sob during mass, my eyes trained above us, waiting for my doom to drop from the sky. My mom wanted to take me to therapy. My dad convinced her that a little more exposure to whatever was scaring me and I would be good as new. As if 12 years of church hadn't been enough exposure. That's when he signed me up to be a server. All the kids did it in our church, but I'd managed to avoid it up until then. As the server, I'd be assisting the priest during Mass, bringing the host to the altar, carrying the bunk up the aisle, that sort of thing. As a young child, it had seemed fascinating to me. I wanted to be the one to help out the priest just like the big kids. As I got older, it seemed darker somehow, more serious and subdued. When my father told me the news... I didn't feel like I had been given an important job. I felt like I was being offered up on an altar as a sacrifice. In order to be a server, we had to be trained by the priest first. It sounds hard, but all you really had to do was sit with the priest one afternoon in the sacristy and listen to him explain your duties. Our priest was a nice old man named Father Augustine. It wasn't his real name. He'd once told us, but a name he took to honor St. Augustine. Because, as he said, St. Augustine lived his life as a sinner and was only saved by the grace of God. I, too, have sinned, and I, too, look for the grace of God to save me, he'd said. My only comfort when my dad dropped me off at the church was that at least I wouldn't be alone. Father Augustine would be with me. I went around to the back of the church, slipping into a side door that led to a narrow flight of stairs. It would bring me right to the sacristy, and maybe I wouldn't have to go into the church proper. But of course, life is never so generous. 
Father Augustine wasn't in sacristy. Even after ten minutes of waiting, he wasn't there. I was going to have to look for him. It took me another five minutes to work up the nerve to exit the other side of the sacristy. On shaking legs, I stepped out into the church, my eyes fixed firmly on the ground in front of me. I forced myself to walk until I was standing next to the altar and then raised my eyes just a little. Father Augustine was standing in the middle of the church. He was looking up at the ceiling, his brow furrowed. For one horrible, panicky moment, I wondered if he was talking to God about me. If God was telling him what a horrible child I was, if they were conspiring to... Ah, Anthony, there you are. I shook myself out of my panic spiral of thought and blinked at Father Augustine. He was beaming at me, as always, and I let the fear seep out of my chest. Father Augustine would never let God take me away like that, surely. He'd always been kind to me. He would protect me. I rushed down the stairs to meet him, and he laughed a little. Slow down, boy. No need to be so eager. I've spoken to your father, and he told me that you were a little nervous today. Is that so? With Father Augustine smiling at me, I felt a little foolish for being so afraid. I could almost feel the tips of my ears burning as I mumbled. Just a little, sir, but I'll be all right. He chuckled a bit. Well, if it's all right with you, I thought that we could do our lesson over in the rectory. It might make you less nervous rather than staying in this stuffy old church all morning. What do you think? What did I think? (laughs) I thought I would cry for joy. Trust Father Augustine to always know what was best for me. I opened my mouth to take him up on his offer. Plip. A spot of black appeared on his Roman collar. His eyes slid down, his brow furrowed again, confusion plain on his face like rain on a wedding day. My face probably looked much like this same, trying to figure out what was happening. Plip, plip, plip. Another streak of black, this one landing on his cheek. Two more came down on his shoulders, but they were nearly indistinguishable from the black of his robes. What the? He began, his confusion growing in the tension that thickened in the air. And then suddenly... The confusion was gone, and agony was in its place. Father Augustine started to scream just as the smoke began to rise from his skin. The peace of the church was shattered, fragmented, as he began to claw at the black sludge smoking on his flesh. His screams seemed to break a barrier of some kind, and the black sludge began to pour from the ceiling like torrential rain. My screams joined his as I stumbled backwards, tripping over my feet and falling to the ground, hard. In front of me, Father Augustine's body began to fold in on itself. He was trying to make himself small as though it could protect him from the acid death that had descended from the rafters. From the way it ate through his skin, it didn't seem to be working. His flesh was melting off his bones, his blood soaking through the tatters of his clothing. The more the sludge dissolved him, the greater the smoke emitted. Soon, all I could see of Father Augustine was a bloodshot eye, frantically searching for someone, anyone, to help him. And then that, too, was enveloped in the 
acrid black smoke. A few moments later, the screaming stopped. I never felt so alone in my life. Shock had gripped my system and I couldn't run. I couldn't even stand. Instead, I sat there watching, waiting for the smoke to disperse. And once it did, I saw him again. Father Augustine's bones were crumpled on the ground in a tangled heap. His flesh, blood, clothes, everything else was gone. The black sludge clung to his remains, still smoking slightly. What I had not noticed before was a long, thin rope of black stretching down from the ceiling to Father Augustine's skull. I watched in speechless horror as the black sludge began to gravitate slowly towards that rope. The sludge seemed to gain a life of its own, using the rope to crawl back up towards the rafters. Yet, it was loath to leave behind the old priest's remains. It dragged the bones with it, and they hung from their bonds in disarray, like some kind of museum exhibit that had been put together wrong. Slowly, the bones, the darkness, gravitated back towards the rafters. A fallen angel in reverse... And then, all at once, the shadows swallowed them whole, and they vanished. I was left alone to the smell of acid and decay. Father Augustine was declared missing, and a search began immediately. My father, my mother, the police, none of them believed the story I told them. I can't say I blamed them. Why would you believe me? Do you find yourself believing me now? Whether you believe me or not, it's verifiable fact that he was never found. The search was called off after six months, and he was declared legally dead after a year. I spent four years in an institution. Nobody was quite sure what to make of my involvement in this, My father thought, probably still thinks for all I know, that I made it up to try and get out of serving and that Father Augustine's disappearance was a coincidence. I'll never understand how someone is able to delude themselves so completely to believe something as ridiculous as that. My mother thought I must have seen what happened and had some kind of mental break because of it. She thought eventually I'd remember and I would be able to tell everyone what happened to Father Augustine. After my years in the institution, it became clear that was never going to happen. Perhaps she was disappointed in me. Perhaps she found a way to hate me. Who knows? I never will. I haven't had any contact with my parents in years. After I was released and declared mentally sound... I went to live with my grandparents on my mother's side. They loved and cared for me in some ways more than my parents ever had. That's not to say my grandparents were bad people. It's just that, well, church was one of many things that they cared about more than they cared about me. I went back to school, got my GED. At my grandfather's suggestion, I ended up becoming an electrician. Life has been all right since then. I've moved on, so to speak. But I never 
but the incident behind me. I've been researching. From the moment I was able to get access to a computer unsupervised, I've been looking. And this is what I found. Father Augustine's real name was Anthony Malkovich. He was born in a small town in Missouri in 1952. He was not ordained to the priesthood until 1987. Between 1952 and 1987, he lived in three states. He started in Missouri, moved to Kansas, and eventually came to Iowa. His time in Missouri stretched from 1952 to 1970. During this time, six children disappeared in his hometown. None of them were ever found. From 1970 to 1985, he lived in Kansas. In his new county of residence, six children disappeared. None of them were ever found. His stint in Iowa was brief, 1985 to 87. He lived in a larger city here, but I was able to identify six missing children. Guess how many of them were found? I lost track of his movements after 87, but in 94, he appeared as a priest in my hometown in South Dakota. According to the records I found between 94 and his disappearance in 2001, three more children disappeared and have never been found. I don't know what all this means. I'd like to present you with a gift-wrapped, fully solved mystery. No loose ends, no questions left unanswered. But I can't. I don't know if Father Augustine was responsible for all these disappearances. I don't know why they always came in groups of six. I don't know what he was going to do with me that day in the church. I'd like to know these things. But what I'd really like to know is what stopped him and why. That thing in the rafters. Did he call it up from the depths of hell? Were the children meant to be sacrifices for it? Was Father Augustine a slave to it or a master over it? Is it still there, waiting in the shadows for a new master or a new victim? But beyond all of these questions, one reigns supreme. If it's not God, and I certainly hope it isn't, then what the hell? is the thing in the rafters. I love my grandparents' fireplace. In the summer of my 15th year after the accident, my parents sent me to stay with my grandparents. I had always liked their house. They were well off, so the house was huge, complete with three stories and winding staircase. I always slept on the west end of the second floor with its window overlooking the surrounding grove and grandma's garden. I was actually looking forward to spending my summer there, if I'm honest. I wanted to get away from my parents. The pitying stares they gave me, the probing questions, my grandparents never pitied me because they knew that it wouldn't help. I'm simply not that kind of girl. They gave me space, gave me time to collect myself. 
Plus, my grandma let me garden with her, which I always enjoyed, so it was perfect for me. I still remember that hot day in June when I moved my things into the spare bedroom. I had a four-poster bed, complete with a pink canopy and pink quilt, a holdover from when I was a child. A few of my childhood toys had ended up in that room over the years, and I found that I liked them there, as fond memories of a time when things weren't so messed up. The room was huge, with a bay window and a gaping fireplace that I'd loved to explore when I was little. I remember looking at that fireplace then, wondering how long it had been since I had seen a flame. If it weren't so hot, I wouldn't have minded starting a fire myself. It might give me something to do. But as it was, I found myself sitting on the fluffy pink bed, staring out the window at an endless blue sky, promising happier days. I felt very alone, and that was okay. I spent a lot of time in that room. It's not that I didn't like being outside. It's just that I'd float off sometimes, sitting in my bed and staring out the window, my mind somewhere in the clouds, thinking of things I can't even remember now. It would feel like just a few moments, but in reality, I'd sit for hours like that. The doctors said that was normal. I didn't really mind. It was on one such day, my fingers absentmindedly picking at the purple embroidery on the quilt on my bed, that I began to hear it. It was something of a deep, thrumming sound, trembling in the air around me. It was low, at first, almost unnoticeable, except in that secret place in the back of my mind that knows things I prefer to ignore. However, the sound became more intense, shaking around me with a ferocity that I couldn't keep at bay, and I found my eyes scanning the room for a source of the sound. As soon as my eyes fell on the chimney... The sound went away. I can't say it stopped exactly. It didn't feel like the noise could just stop existing. No, it was resting, waiting for something, perhaps. With that in mind, I rose to my scared feet and walked over to the fireplace, feeling drawn to it like a hapless moth to a flame. It was darkened, black with age, a thick layer of soot carved into the stone. I knelt down by it and let my fingers drift over the grime, watching it coat my skin. It felt nice there. Even after all this time, the fireplace radiated warmth. My eyes slipped shut and I let myself fall asleep, curled up in the memory of cinders, like some fucked up version of Cinderella. After that, I took a liking to the fireplace. Whenever I was in my room, which just so happened to be most of the time, I would sit in front of it, feeling rather more tranquil, staring into its darkness than staring out at the sky. Ever since that day, I didn't really like the sky. No, the stone and the black and the quiet heat was much better for someone like me. Sometimes I would find myself mumbling to the fireplace as though it had gained sentience and waited patiently for me to share the secrets of my life with it. Most of the time it just drifted around, engulfed by its remaining heat. Sometimes, when the nightmares keep me awake, I would sleep in front of it too. I like to pull my comforter and all the pillows onto the bed to make a nest for myself on the floor. One night, as I gasped myself awake from a loud and vivid dream, I heard a voice. It was a low voice, vibrating with intensity, shaking and piercing me. 
It almost seemed as though I heard it not from my ears, but from somewhere deep inside me. Why do you not sleep? It asked. It was a nice voice, I decided, very soothing and with an air of kindness about it. I answered immediately. I have nightmares, bad ones, every night. The room was silent for just a moment before it asked, May I see? I nodded, a little hesitantly. I didn't know what it meant by see, but I didn't question it. Rather, I found myself wondering if the voice would go away after it saw what went on inside my head. As soon as I gave my consent, I felt something stirring around inside my brain. It was like long fingers were snaking their way into my ears, probing around and tasting the contours of my brain. I closed my eyes as a vision sparked behind my eyelids. I saw the car that we'd ridden in that day, its dark, tinted windows and the dent on the left side. I saw my boyfriend sitting in the driver's seat and my best friend sitting in the back. I must have been in the passenger seat. I saw a blur of loud color as the car rolled. I smelled gasoline pouring around me as I looked, first from him, then to her, then back again. I reached for my boyfriend. I shook him. Nothing. My fingers fumbled around his neck. No pulse. Dead. I tried not to think as I dragged myself to the back seat, my hands grasping at my best friend. Her body was bent and broken at all the wrong angles, but my hand ghosted across her mouth and I felt her hot breath on my skin still alive. The rear window was shattered. I pulled her out of the seatbelt and crawled out of the car. I tried to stand, but the glass around us cut my feet and I fell to my knees. Pieces of glass were embedded in my skin, but I was too focused to worry. I dragged us through the grass away from the car, expecting it to explode any second. Except it didn't. That was when the real nightmare began. The fingers in my brain massaged out my memories, and I gasped and shuddered. I didn't like thinking about that day. No, I'd prefer to think of anything else. The voice understood. Would you like to sleep again? It asked. I'm afraid, I whispered. You do not have to be, it said. I believed it, as though on an instinctual level I knew it to be telling the truth. I lay down in my little nest of blankets and pillows and felt the fingers searching around my mind as my eyes slipped shut once again. This time, I didn't dream of the accident. I didn't dream of anything, exactly. All I saw in my mind were colors. The dark gray with swirls of black from the fireplace, to be exact. I liked it. It was soothing. It felt right. I slept very well that night. 
From then on, I kept up a constant conversation with the voice in the fireplace. It only responded on occasion, but I didn't mind that at all. I found that there was no lack of things to discuss, even when it remained silent for hours at a time. I told the voice about my family and my house. I talked about school and the way the other students avoided me after the accident. I talked about things that used to make me happy, but didn't anymore. Occasionally, the voice would ask me a question. Are you afraid of death? It would ask. No, I would say, my fingers trailing patterns in the soot. I used to be, but I'm not anymore. Sometimes I wish it would come faster. Do you miss them? It would ask. Yes, I would say. They were very important to me. Why do you regret what you did? It would ask. I wouldn't answer that one. I no longer had nightmares. Each night, the voice would send its invisible fingers to squeeze into the cracks of my brain, lulling me to a dark, pleasant sleep. It was very kind to me. We were fast friends, that voice and I. My grandparents began to worry about me. Other than coming downstairs for my meals, I would stay in my room, staring at the fireplace and muttering to myself. I imagine they thought it was getting worse, not better. That was simply untrue. The voice was healing me. Sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night, the voice retreating back into the fireplace as my grandparents came into my room to check on me. They'd whisper and argue. They'd talk about doctors. The voice would become tense. I didn't like it when they came to my room. One day the voice told me it was hungry. Why don't you eat? I asked. I wait, it said. For what? For the right moment. Then it told me that it didn't eat very often, once every few years. I was fascinated. I asked if I could find it some food, but it didn't seem interested in anything that I ate. In time, I eat, it said. My grandparents wanted to take me to the hospital. You aren't getting better, Kelly, said my grandmother. She had already brought up my shoes and sat them down in front of me. Apparently, they wanted me to go right then and there. You've been here for months, and all you do is sit in front of that fireplace, said my grandfather. He was a gruff man, usually very stoic, but even I could hear the concern in his voice. My eyes drifted out the window for the first time in, well, in forever. The sky was decaying with the vestiges of fall, and I wondered exactly how long I had been in that house. We'll get you help, said my grandmother, reaching out to comfort me. I didn't mean to recoil. It's just that I didn't want to think about leaving the voice. I think it was rather lonely, stuck in that fireplace for so long. I think it was rather lonely, stuck in that fireplace for so long. It needed me, and I needed it. Apparently the voice thought so too. A strange rumbling came from the chimney, and a haze of soot and dusk showered down the maw of the fireplace. 
My grandma and grandpa stood very still, looking at the fireplace in fear and confusion. I looked too, only it was awe that I felt. We watched together as it began to come out. First came its hands as it crawled its way down the chimney. They were really more like claws, so white and thin that I thought they must be bone. As it came closer, I realized it was skin, leathery and stretched taut against spindly appendages. Its arms were long and lean, trembling a little with the weight of its body. Its head poked out next, but it was folded down near its body and I couldn't see its face. Its torso came into view, and then its feet. It was almost human in its presentation, but for the fact that it was simply too long, its torso stretched out and ribless, its legs crouched under it like a beast. Its feet were long, each toe ending in a sharp point. The claws on its hands tapped against the dust of the fireplace. It lifted its smooth white head. It was awfully white for something that lived in the grime. My grandparents screamed when they saw its face, but I couldn't breathe enough to make a sound. It had sunken holes where it should have had eyes, but I could sense that it was somehow able to see. It didn't appear to have a mouth, but there was a ragged black mark stretching across its jaw like some kind of strange rash. It inclined its head at me, staring. My grandma grabbed my arm to pull me from the room. That made the beast angry. It scuttled toward us. Yes, scuttled. That's the word for how it moved. And reached for my grandma. She shrieked as my grandfather reached out to fight it off. It was a very quick fight. The thing's long arm lashed out and suddenly deep grooves appeared in my grandpa's chest. He fell to the ground as the blood poured out of his body, leaving him dead on the floor. My grandma didn't even have a chance to move before the thing's hind legs kicked toward her, stabbing straight through her stomach and out the other side. She died quickly as well. I sank to the floor as the thing rumbled, a sound of deep hunger in its body. The black skin of its jaw began to pull apart, revealing an even deeper darkness within. It began to lap at the blood and flesh of the bodies at its feet, using its claws to tear at the skin and meat. It didn't take it long at all to consume the bodies of my grandparents, and less than an hour, they were picked clean, their skulls and broken bones left in a bloody pile on the spare room floor. Once its feeding was complete, it turned toward me, sitting back on its haunches and staring at me. Its body was stronger now, and it no longer struggled to hold itself up. It had been satisfied. We held each other's gaze for a few long moments. It had things to say. I did too. Why not me? I asked. It inclined its head again, and I thought for a moment of a puppy I'd had when I was a child, one that had been run over by a car. I do not feel on those that have killed. I must feel on the innocent. An image 
flashed in my mind, one that I'd been trying to forget for months. The police officer at the scene, as he had bent down to examine my best friend's body. It had ruined my life. The moment he said that she had broken her neck, and she may not have died if I hadn't moved her from the car. The car didn't burn, didn't explode, no. It sat there like a blight in my eyes, forever peaceful in the twisted grass of that low ditch. They say it wasn't my fault, you know, I told the thing. It must have known that I never believed them. There is nothing less important than that, it said. It was right. Are you going to leave me now? I asked. It nodded, and I could sense a deep sorrow from inside it. I've never had a choice. Can I come with you? I asked. Maybe someday, it said, but not today. I could sense my disappointment, perhaps in an attempt to make peace, and had just slaughtered my grandparents after all. It scuttled back to the fireplace and reached up into the chimney. It took something down in its long claws and crawled toward me. As it approached, I felt a deep heat radiating from inside it, as though it was made of fire itself. It placed something in my hand. A few small bones, so tiny and light, they must have come from a bird. Even now, I have those bones. They let me keep them. Will I see you again? I asked. It nodded. It reached out and patted me on the head, carefully, gently. Then it turned and crawled back up the chimney. And I was alone again. The doctors, the police, my parents, none of them know what happened. The police found me the next day. Apparently my grandparents had been giving my parents daily updates on my condition and they became nervous when my grandparents didn't call. The cops found me sitting in the spare bedroom staring at the remains of my family. I told my story from start to finish. I knew the beast wouldn't mind. But nobody believed me. Nobody believed that I killed them, either. It was simply impossible. After all, how could I have made such work of their bodies in such a short amount of time? There was no evidence to say that I had a hand in their deaths. Everyone was at a loss. The only thing they all agreed on is that I'm crazy. My parents sent me to a mental institute. The cops didn't have the heart to insist I reside with the criminally insane, and they understood that I hadn't committed murder, at least not that day. So I went to a nice little hospital just a few towns away with glaring white rooms and a nice little garden out back. I like the garden the best. It reminds me of my grandmother. The doctors ask a lot about the beast. They call it a monster, but I don't think that's quite right. But then again, I'm no expert in monsters. They asked me to describe it over and over. They've had me draw it a million times. They look for inconsistencies. I don't mind. 
I miss my beast. Some days when the sky is gray like soot, I like to look into the clouds and wonder if it is out there somewhere, thinking of me, waiting for the day it can come back to me. One day, I will see it again. Until then, I bide my time.